Good, good morning, everybody. Uh, now, we're, now we're live. That's excellent. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Bill Sage. Uh, I'm a health policy expert and member of the UT Law faculty here at University of Texas at Austin. I'm also the campus's vice provost for health affairs. Welcome to the Texas Tribune Festival uh, and to uh, our uh, session uh, in the Health and Human Services section, which is called uh, The Affordable Care Act is Constitutional, uh, So What Now? Um, let me um, introduce uh, the, the panelists. Uh, I, uh, we have um, four very distinguished health policy experts uh, with us today, uh, and uh, starting uh, from that side of the room and working uh, our way back towards me. Uh, first, we have uh, Ann Dunkelberg. Ann is an Associate Director for the Center for Public uh, Policy Priorities, uh, and before joining that center back in 1994, uh, she was uh, at the State Medicaid Director's Office uh, at the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. Uh, then we have Dr. Dan Stoltz. Uh, Dr. Stoltz is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Hospital Association. Uh, then we have, uh, moving again this way, um, former Representative Arlene Wolgamuth. Uh, Representative Wolgamuth is Executive Director uh, for the Center for Healthcare Policy at the uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, she had previously served for 10 years in the Texas legislature, uh, including a, a lot of work uh, on uh, the organization of the Health and Human Services Commission uh, and the state agencies involved in overseeing health care and health in the state. Um, and then uh, closest to me uh, is Tom Cease, uh, the former executive commissioner uh, for the Texas Health and Human Services uh, Commission. Uh, Tom uh, stepped down, retired uh, this past August, uh, and he had been appointed by Governor Perry uh, back in 2009 uh, and uh, had discharged his responsibilities quite admirably during that time. Uh, so that's our panel uh, for today. Uh, and um, I, I took a little bit of uh, moderator's liberty because I work a lot on uh, health reform uh, to give a little bit of PowerPoint support to the discussion. So we're going to have kind of a, a structured conversation. Um, and it's going to be about the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I'll explain this slide uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but, but first, I thought uh, it would be good as, as a way of uh, helping all of you out in the audience understand where each of the panelists uh, is coming from on the, the general topic uh, of, of health reform uh, to get some kind of short answers. Uh, from these panelists, and since uh, none of the panelists is currently serving uh, in government, uh, they, they can tell us exactly what they think. And <laughs> wa walking over here, I, I thought, okay, I actually have a quote for this. Um, my favorite movie is The Princess Bride, and I find there's kind of a quote from The Princess Bride for nearly every occasion, and so the thing that came to mind was the scene where uh, Wesley is... Uh, being tortured by Count Rugen, uh, and Count Rugen asks him about uh, his uh, feelings and says, uh, and be honest, this is for posterity. So all of you be honest, this is for posterity. Uh, okay, for, for, first short answer questions. Uh, name one thing about health reform that each of you thinks that all of you ought to agree about. Anne? Well, I think, uh we probably all agree on some level that the cost of health care, both uh, at the individual and family level or as a percentage of GDP, is something that we need to get under control and reduce and control the rate of growth in. 
Yeah, I would say that's uh, bending the cost curve, so to speak, is what we all would agree on. That health care reform is needed and that there is uh, a need for a safety net program for health uh, that the current system is not very efficient and part of the reform should be to improve the efficiency, not necessarily just the cost, but the efficiency of the system. Thanks. Um, and now kind of uh, going from the warm and fuzzy side to the other extreme, um, can you name one thing you think is just plain wrong um, in what someone else seems to believe about health care reform? <laughs> And actually, let's, let's go. Let's go. In let's go in the reverse. The panel, right? We'll go okay. in the reverse. <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't have to be someone on the panel. We we all like each other. But let's let's let's. So what, what what's kind of? I can't believe people really think that around health reform. That um, we should expand Medicaid before we reform it. That the federal government can solve the problem. That. Uh, with 26 million, with 20, with 26 percent of our population, that we won't pass a health bill this session that involves improved coverage. That it is not a good and needed thing for the United States to have an explicit system of guaranteeing financial access to a decent standard of health care. Great. Okay, now we're going to talk about the Affordable Care Act. Um, I've realized over the course of years that although we've been debating this act vigorously um, since 2009 or so, very few people actually know what it is. Uh, so I've evolved a simple way of, of uh, explaining what it is, um, and that's also going to guide our conversation. Um, so I have this one slide here, and this is what at least the heart of the Affordable Care Act is. Uh, there are ten parts, titles in the act, and these are the first five, and you'll have to trust me that there's nothing greatly important or highly sinister in six through ten. Um, but the, these are one through five, and how do you know they're one through five? Because these are the actual titles taken right out of the table of contents of the law. Nothing's been monkeyed with at all. Um, and so um, Title I says quality, affordable care for all Americans. Um, and that's mainly about expanding private insurance coverage. And Title II says role of public programs. And that's mainly about expanding public insurance coverage. And the thing that most is expanded is the Medicaid program, um, the um, jointly federally and state funded state administered program that serves largely indigent individuals. Um, and Titles I and II together are about health insurance. Title III is not about health insurance. It's actually about the delivery of health care. Um, and that's called improving the quality and efficiency of health care. And so that's about doctors, hospitals, drug companies, suppliers, um, other professionals, et cetera. Um, Title IV, and I'll sort of stop at Title IV, even though Title V, which is about the workforce, is important. It's on the slide. Um, Title IV is called Prevention of Chronic Disease and improving public health. That's not about health insurance, and it's not about health care delivery. That's actually about health. And as you all know, health care is only one component of underlying health. So if there's one sort of take-home teaching point that I'd want everyone in the audience to understand about this federal law, and it's not saying it's good, it's not saying it's bad. So this federal law is extraordinarily ambitious because it tries in one law for the very first time to do something about health insurance coverage, and healthcare delivery, and health. 
So we're going to talk through these subjects, and we're going to spend you know a um, little discussion time on each of the first four titles. Um, so let, let's start with um, Title One, and specifically, let's talk about uh, the insurance exchanges that are in Title One of the Affordable Care Act. Now, Title One of the Affordable Care Act, um, I, I like to have uh, little kind of visual aids. And um, so uh, I have a picture for each of these. And so some of you have seen me speak about this. Um, so if things change, oops, that's Title Two. There's Title One. OK. So this is Title One of the Affordable Care Act. It is a magic wand. Uh, because this is the provision in Title One of the Affordable Care Act that basically says that everybody who's currently uninsurable in private health insurance shall be insurable, waves a magic wand, and declares everyone to be insurable. So um, the mechanism for a lot of this uh, are the insurance exchanges. And these are designed to allow individuals to buy coverage under new rules that guarantee issue guarantee a certain number of benefits, and make premiums reasonable even for people with very serious health problems who currently aren't insurable. Uh, so uh, starting with former Commissioner Cease, um, tell me, um, in order for these insurance exchanges to work in each state, um, either the state needs to set it up or the federal government needs to set it up. So what are your thoughts about cooperation between Texas and the federal government in setting up and operating the insurance exchanges? I believe the, the state's position is an accurate one that I think we need to not rush into setting up the exchange because I think there's too many complex issues yet to be resolved because part of the drafting of the Affordable Care Act was done by people who had no idea of the complexities of an eligibility system. Let me give you a specific example. Uh, our eligibility systems in Texas, which is least integrated, has to be elastic. It's got to be responsive to changes in the economy. It's got to be responsive to changes in family situations. Whereas the Affordable Care Act bases the linkage into the tax code, uh, uh, MAGI, you know, your, your modified adjusted gross income. Well, you know, the tax code is very static. It's not responsive. And, and you take a, a family situation changes constantly. And our, all our eligibility systems are tied to the definition of a family. Well, the tax code is, is tied to the definition who's the income earner. And that complexity is, is a very complex thing that's not going to be worked out by an exchange. And, and, and so the exchange and, and the federal government doesn't understand. That's why the state needs to be controlling the basic core eligibility. Is that, is that a problem unique to Texas or no, it's all nationwide, states? nationwide. It's just some states have got a more integrated system than others. But it's going to be complex. And the rules have not been written yet. So, so should Texas be rolling up its sleeves with the feds and write the rules? No, I, 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 we are. We're submitting the suggestion. I said we are. The agency has in the past and continue to be very active in it. But, but that is, is something thought out, should have been thought out a lot earlier when, and when the act was, was proposed and acted, that, that there isn't a state system out there uh, that you need to reforce the existing systems, not overlay a, a federal system. So, Anne, what do, you, what, what do you think? Is the perfect the enemy of the good here? Should we just, you know, can, can we get all of this fixed or do we have to just go ahead? And how should Texas and the federal government work together or not to do it? Well, I'd just state that perfection's not an option. And um, in sort of being on the advocacy side of 
of the development process and the federal rules and the processes for eligibility, I, I can tell you that I hear from the federal authorities that they are both listening to advocates but enormously committed to giving states lots of latitude in how they set up their own systems. It's important to understand that at this point there are only maybe six states that are going to be prepared to run their own exchange in January 2014 because so many states decided to lay out until they could figure out whether or not the Supreme Court decision was going to allow the law to go forward. And one area where I'm, I really think I'm probably not on the same page with Tom is that the way you get maximum control over the integration of your eligibility systems for your exchange and your eligibility system for your Medicaid program is by running both of them. And the only way you do that is if you do establish a state exchange. Um, this is kind of wonky stuff. It, it, he is absolutely right that the technological leap to both revamp state Medicaid eligibility systems and make them interoperate with a private coverage health insurance exchange is pretty significant. And about the only good thing I can say about the fact that the vast majority of states will be operating federally, what they call federally facilitated exchanges in 2014, is that at least that means they will all essentially be using the same platform and there'll be one very standard platform for state uh, Medicaid systems to, to interact with. So do, do, do we go it alone or do we work with the feds right now on this? Well, we are working with the feds on some of the technological preparations that need to happen and we're smartly taking advantage of the fact that they're providing a 90% match for all of the modernizations that we're having to do to our eligibility system already. So good news is we have an online uh, application and renewal system for Medicaid now that we didn't have a couple of years ago and that's, that's really going to help us. We still have some big, big challenges in converting uh, you know, that system to a bunch of new rules and setting it up to interact with a federally facilitated exchange. The fact that all the other states are in the same boat that we're in basically you know, means that we're not going to be subject to uh, any kind of expectation that every other state isn't. And, and presumably the feds will, will either make sure it's ready to go for everyone or extend deadlines. Arlene, this is one of those areas where, yes, it's wonky and complicated. It's also so wonky and complicated that no one could really specify it in advance in the law what needed to be done. So a lot of it was kind of left kind of vague, uh, which means people can be uh, optimists, pessimists, can be, you know, roll up their sleeves and work, can, you know, drag their feet for different reasons. What do you think about kind of how Texas and, and the feds should cooperate or not cooperate over the exchanges? Well, there's serious question about whether it's even legal for the federal government to set up a, uh, a state exchange, but that being our federal exchange within a state, but that being set aside, I think the, uh, the fact that what Ann brought up about how few states are even moving in that direction, uh, the law is complex, and one of the things that we should have learned about health care uh, at this point is that complexity equals cost. When a system is really complex, like we have with the current Medicaid program, it just adds layers and layers of cost. We are a free market uh, foundation, and so what that means is that consumers and the marketplace is much better at controlling cost than, than the federal government could ever be. And, you know, I just, I, I take a step back and, take, and look at what the federal government 
is not doing currently in Medicare and Medicaid and wonder if anybody really believes that a federal government that can't even control the massive fraud and abuse that is occurring in Medicare and Medicaid now can, is capable of setting up an efficient system that controls cost. Okay, Dan, let me ask you, but drawing on Arlene's comments, um, a specific issue about the exchanges from the perspective of Texas hospitals. So um, let's assume that we can set up exchange. Let's assume we're going to work with the feds on the details of that exchange. Different states have different approaches. Some states have um, exchanges that really are just um, kind of um, clearing houses for choices of insurance where people would go. Other states have much more regulatory exchanges where um, it's kind of a structured marketplace that's uh, at least designed to make access better and cost lower, whether it succeeds as that's contestable. What would you say should be the direction for a Texas exchange? Yeah, I don't know why we would have to start with the most complicated system. It looks like to me that we could start with something that's on the, as you said earlier, the kind of simple choices. I, I'm concerned about the very thing that everybody's brought up here, which is, are our capabilities, where, where is the state with its capabilities to ex just uh, exchange information, the whole uh, piece with uh, health and human, is that something that they can take on? They've, uh, in deference to Tom, they've been lost a lot of folks. They're, uh, and I just would be very, knowledgeable about what our capability is before we launch something. Um, but I certainly don't think that we need to go uh, into the exchange business with uh, trying to do everything the f first shot. Any other comments, people? I think part of the extra comment I'd make is I think Texas has some things that, that are in operation now that you can build upon. I think the Department of Insurance Healthy Texas program has the capability possibly to expand and move into being similar to an exchange as long as we're continuing to improve our eligibility system and somehow try to simplify the and, and ch uh, somehow change the linkage to the tax code. I think that's where the complexity is going to boil down. And last point I think we need to make sure because the assumption that you laid out, Mill, is that, that we're going to do all this and then all of a sudden 2018, 19, we've eliminated the uninsured in the state. And the fact is, the, our best estimates, the commission's best estimates that after, we, if we fully expanded Medicaid and we did all the other things change, we'd have 6.3 million, say roughly, Texans uninsured now. After we implement all this, we're still gonna have 3 million individuals without insurance and they're still gonna be hitting his members up in, in the most costly environment, the emergency rooms, everywhere else. And so we still haven't addressed some of the fundamental inefficiencies in the system even after you implement the Affordable Care Act. And so that's why I think reform is broader than the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, I, I, I think I, that's I, a very important point because we're not getting rid of one system in favor of another system. We're gonna have dual systems still. I, I agree that's a very important, but I was gonna say that you know, as the moderator, I'm not supposed to do too much editorializing, but I'll, I'll, I'll just- Nothing stopped you before, Bill. That's true. <laughs> and, and it's not gonna stop me in the future either. Um, but I think this is actually a very important point to think about, and it. it's something is unique to Texas because we have so many undocumented residents, because uh, we will have a residual burden of the uninsured that's larger than any other state that I can think of. Um, from the perspective of healthcare providers, and particularly hospitals, we are asking them to work in a mixed system. We're asking them to um, both 
to, to leave some of their old practices behind, but not all of their old obligations behind. And I think that's actually a really serious point for people to think about. Um, so let's I, turn I from, need to jump in on the undocumented, though. <laughs> well, really no, I'll, I'll, you, can you jump in a little later on that? Uh, I I'll will. Get, Okay. Because <laughs> I've got, because I've, I've got, I've got, I've got three more um, parts of the Affordable Care Act we need to talk about. Okay, so let's go from from Title One to Title Two. Now we're this, we're still in the domain of health insurance. We haven't gotten to the healthcare delivery part or the health part. Um, now Title One was to deal with the problem of people who, in current systems of private insurance are uninsurable. Um, and the reason it's a magic wand is it declares people to be insurable. And the reason it is a magic wand that might actually have some magic in it um, is that everybody's supposed to have insurance. And if you're in a system where um, everybody is insured, then um, in terms of insurance economics, everyone can be insurable. But let's move on um, to the next piece, which is actually Title II. Title II is also about health insurance, but it's not about the people who are not insurable. It's the people who might be perfectly insurable, but they can't afford insurance. Because insurance is really, really expensive, and if you're supporting a family of four on the minimum wage, you could put every dollar you make and then some towards a policy of insurance, and you still wouldn't be able to pay for it. Um, and so um, Title II of the Affordable Care Act uh, is really just uh, money, a lot of money. So I have a $100 bill up there uh, on, on the screen. Um, so um, Title II includes a very dramatic expansion of the Medicaid program, and that's been in the news a lot, and it's something that uh, we absolutely need to talk about. Um, and uh, it's a dramatic expansion in that um, after the Affordable Care Act, on a nationally uniform basis, Medicaid would cover uh, people earning up to about 133% of the federal poverty line, which is between twenty and $25,000 a year for a family of four. Um, in Texas, this would create a sizable Medicaid program for adults, uh, which has really never existed before. Um, and by um, the calculations of the Texas Comptroller would over the course of 10 years uh, bring about uh, $70 billion net of federal money into Texas, though it would require Texas to spend several billion dollars of its own money in addition. Um, so I, I thought here I'd start with um, Arlene. Um, and the question I have for you is, um, how will lower income Texans provide for their health care if not through an expanded Medicaid program? Well, let me address your question first, because your question presupposes that if they had Medicaid insurance, that they would be able to get care, when in fact, uh, what we have in Texas is an increasing population and a declining number, percentage-wise, of primary care physicians to take care of those. So adding about three million people into the Medicaid program would require a primary care network that we don't have and that we are unlikely to have. Uh, the only provision that is in the Affordable Care Act uh, in Obamacare, whichever way you want to call that, is uh, a two-year bump in primary care uh, physician payment reimbursement rates. That two-year bump is not going to entice a medical school student to select primary care as their specialty, nor is it going to entice those who are already in practice to assume a big Medicaid caseload when they know that the, uh, the payment rate, reimbursement rate, is likely to go back down. Um, yesterday I was reading a, a little quote from, and I shortened it for the purposes of this, uh, from the Brookings Institution 
said, I think about the one million children who will be born into poverty next year, one million new entrants into poverty. More than 50% of them will spend half their childhood in poverty. 29% of them will live in high poverty communities. 10% will be born low birth weight, a key indicator of cognitive delays and problems in schools. Only 60% of them will have access to health care that meets the criteria for having a medical home. And by age three, fewer than 75% of them will be in good or excellent health. Now that is not an indictment of, of, the, of those who are not insured. This is an indictment of the Medicaid program that currently affords every one of those children that are being discussed, whether it's prenatal care for a pregnant woman or whether it is a child uh, zero to six uh, who's eligible for Medicaid up to 133% of poverty or a child six to 18 who is currently uh, eligible for Medicaid up to 100% of poverty there's already the eligibility in Medicaid. That is an indictment on the current program. So expanding this current program by another three million people is not going to give access to care. You may as well just print out Medicaid cards and pass them out to everybody because nobody would ever collect. They couldn't find anyone to take their insurance anyway. Uh, okay. So the system has failed. Let me let me get a response from Dan, especially kind of around the notion that um, if we provide Medicaid to adults, and un understand, you know, just factually, we do not have an adult Medicaid program in Texas. So this would create an adult Medicaid program in Texas, and indeed, it would require a lot of care infrastructure. Um, from the perspective of the hospitals who are uh, providing services to some of these people currently. Um, what do you think about the Medicaid expansion? Well, the notion that you, you don't want to expand something because you may not have the capability, I find hard to take because it seems like that uh, we should be given the chance uh, to, if you expand coverage, to, to uh, adjust to that, to rise to the challenge. 61% of physicians take Medicaid now, and uh, I think we would figure out a way with expanded services, with expanded coverage, that we could see those people. Um, I, I'm bothered by the statistic that um, that about health care because that presumes that um, coverage doesn't equal care or doesn't equal benefit, and I I, I think it does. It's um, you have to be careful with uh, the numbers you play, but suffice it to say that. If you have more people covered, you're going to get better access to care, hopefully not through the emergency room. Hopefully they'll get a medical home. As many pilot projects in Texas have already shown, we have Medicaid medical home models that work very well and reduce the cost of care. So I think that uh, we could handle it. I think it would be a very good study to see if we could expand the coverage what we would do in terms of access. I believe it would absolutely improve. And does um, the all $100 bills coming mostly from Washington here um, help solve the problem of the health of these people or not? Should we do the expansion? <laughs> well, now you can talk about the undocumented <laughs> population. Go for it. Well, we certainly think that the Medicaid expansion is the fiscal arguments for it alone are just so unbelievably powerful. And 
And I think we frequently in the in the rhetoric, not as opposed to the analysis around healthcare reform, often get caught up in the notion that we shouldn't extend coverage to anybody who's left out of the current system until we fix everything that's wrong with the current system. And I would, you know, I don't think we would ever do that if we were talking about public school. Let's just close down the public schools until we can fix everything about them. We simply, we need to go ahead and, and move forward to correcting the huge imbalance of, of, of so many Americans and so many Texans not having financial access to health care. And it won't be perfect by any means. But um, it, the, for many of us, it is difficult to hear this theme being uh, put forward about a lack of providers who are willing to participate in Medicaid because that is a direct result of decisions that lawmakers make about whether how to finance those programs. And Texas Medicaid, like many other states, we were not at all unique, went close to 20 years without any increases in individual practitioners' rates. Uh, now, Medicaid's complicated, and there are people out there getting very wealthy on Medicaid, and there are others that barely cover their costs, and it's almost too complex even for someone who's a full-time advocate to monitor. But I do believe that the bottom line is the dollars are so huge, the commission's own most recent estimates are that in the, next, in the first four years of coverage, the state would have to put up $1.3 billion to cover the adults and would draw down about 25 billion federal dollars to match that. They would also have to put up some additional money to cover the children who are eligible right as we speak but aren't enrolled and pay a higher share of those kids because they're already eligible and they're at the regular match rate. But if you just do a little bit of math on that, you can see how that increased amount of money in our healthcare system in Texas could more than pay for some very dramatic expansion of our primary care and specialty care capacity. And no one is suggesting that you're not going to have any shortages at the outset, but it's sort of the, if you finance it, they will come. We're not going to be able to build a provider network for people who are uninsured and then flip a switch 10 years from now when we think it's big enough. So Tom, as executive commissioner, you lived and breathed Medicaid for years. I'm put you on the spot. Tell us something about this that you might not have been able to tell us when you were still executive commissioner. I can still get in trouble. No, <laughs> no I, I think my, my spin is I think uh, I have less uh, problems with, with the subsidy program and the able-bodied adult. It's when you start expanding into a full cost covered uh, on the uh, adult population where I have the problem. And part of that has to do with, because uh, part of my background working years in long-term care, is we've not had a truly comprehensive long-term care strategy of how we're going to address the aged and disabled in this state. And I'll tell you one thing, that, that is the item that's really going to drive your Medicaid cost the next 20 years. It's not kids. Kids are relatively cheap, cheap except for mine. <laughs> you know, two, two $3,000 a year. Uh, adult population $10,000 a year. Age and disabled population runs Medicaid $190,000 a year. That is, that is the big gorilla here, and that's where you need your strategy, not trying to pick up an adult population. The subsidy program can, can work through the adult population, and that's where the adult population needs to be picked up, not Medicaid. We need to focus on the age and disabled and children. Okay, I, I may want to come back to that because okay. uh, I was hearing a couple of things in different directions. But I'm going to move us on and now talk about um, Titles Three and Four of the Affordable Care Act. 
Um, so let, let's turn to the inefficiency of how healthcare is delivered by healthcare professionals and health facilities. And, and the attempts to address this are mainly in Title III of the Affordable Care Act. Now, given how much disagreement and, and um, complexity has emerged in the last two topics of discussion, I hate to tell you all, that was the easy part. The health insurance stuff is actually the easy stuff. And the way you know is that um, I showed you pictures of kind of solutions, the magic wand and the $100 bill. For Title III and Title IV, I don't have pictures of solutions because we don't have solutions. I, I have pictures of problems. So um, this, is, this is the picture of the problem that Title III is aiming to address, and it's a very ordinary ballpoint pen. Uh, it's also, as some of you know, the most expensive medical technology in the world. I'll repeat that. It's the most expensive medical technology in the world because this pen and millions like it are used every year by hundreds of thousands of extremely well-intentioned American physicians uh, who write orders for prescriptions, referrals, hospitalization, diagnostic testing, and the like, um, and um, cause us to spend over $2 trillion of our money. Um, and um, all of this is disorganized, and much of it is useless, and some of it is harmful, and all of it is extremely expensive and undoubtedly more expensive than it would be uh, if there were more rhyme and reason to how we went about it. Uh, so the problem isn't the technology. The problem is how we deploy the technology, hence the ballpoint pen. So I'm going to turn to Dr. Stultz, um, and I'm going to ask a very blunt question. Considering how much money is wasted in the system, particularly on hospital care, what will it take for Texas hospitals to be able to care for patients at prices that ordinary people and maybe even the Medicaid program can afford to pay? That's a good question. Uh, first of all, let me distinguish, oh, we're using words going back and forth, hospital care and hospital costs and system costs. Care is never, never wasted. Care is never futile. All care is good. So when we talk about a lot of these hospital tests and hospital costs, uh, that's where our focus needs to be. Uh, the Journal of American Medical Association this spring published uh, an article actually written by Don Berwick uh, where he talked about six issues that would save $900 billion out of the system, and they are all waste issues. They're all uh, not related necessarily to inappropriate care or um, uh, inappropriate uh, outcomes, but they are simply costs. And I'll read those for you, but overtreatment, failure of care consolidation, failure to execute care processes, pricing failure, and uh, fraud and abuse, as a couple of those have already been mentioned. But w one of them is um, $130 billion on unnecessary forms. How many of you have ever gotten a thing in the mail that says, this is not a bill? Uh, <laughs> everybody's gotten those. Medicare sends them, in spite of the fact that we're on a DRG, we waste $130 billion uh, on simply sending you a thing that says this is not a bill. Okay, let me stop wow. beyond that and say, okay, so if that's true, should we just get away, get away from fee-for-service medicine? I mean, when you belong to an HMO, you don't get those things that say this is not a bill. Yes, that's number one. Number two is payment reform. We desperately need some payment reform that moves us from process to outcomes. And so whether it's managed care or whether or not it's... Um, uh, all different varieties of ways that you could do uh, 
payment. Uh, we desperately need, and payment reform is a federal issue for the most part. Um, I think that we have a problem when we start trying to niche at the issue, which is, so we're gonna get penalized for patients coming to the ER this session, when this time, Medicaid patients, when in fact we're driving them to the ER because we don't have a medical home. It's, I know the problem, and that's kind of the problem, but that doesn't really get to the issue. If we would have payment reform, we could fix that. So Tom, you, you, you know Texas government very, very well. I got um, the third one. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the third one is we need to have an adult discussion about end of life. And I'll just tell you that we have spent 50% of our dollars in the last six months of life. So if you're spending whatever the trillion dollar is, it is a lot of gitas. And we are stuck with talking about when we bring up, whether it's through the healthcare law or through any other mechanism, even in Texas, when we talk about end of life issues, we hear death squads and treat until transfer. And that is just not the discussion we need to have. We need to have a discussion there's a science to this, there's an ethic around it. We need to build that ethic. And I, I think that if we did that, we could start to lower the costs in Texas um, this year. But you, you're gonna have to have that discussion. We're not near having that discussion. Tom, reactions particularly around the feasibility of these things given Texas government? Well, you know, we're back to, the, to I think, the point. I think Dan's right. I think there's some uh, bills passed last session, Senate Bill 7, that started put forward a pay-for-performance type system. I think that's very critical. But our real issue is, is how we finance Medicaid in Texas is broken. Uh, 60 and maybe 70 percent of, of hospital care in this state is funded by five hospital districts. That's not a fair system when you have Dallas. This is one of the things I can say now. But I can probably <laughs> say when you, one thing is not fair when you have five counties in the state funding 60% of your health care, your hospitalization care, that's not a good system. It's not, not a fair system because it means you're allowing these five hospital districts to dictate more policy. And so, so I think the issue in the debate at the legislature is not really whether somebody in the state is getting health care, it's whether we need to provide it in a more efficient manner. And the third debate needs to be is how you finance this health care delivery system. The current system doesn't work, and I don't know what the solution is. I'll be more happy for somebody to pay me to help find that solution. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But, but I think that's part of the, the issue is, is how do we finance this system? I think the hospitals all know that they, they have constant battles between private hospitals, public hospitals, and how you finance. Uh, who's going to get the disproportionate share of money is a big issue. And, and of course, if whoever's putting up the money wants to write the rules. It's about time the, the legislature deals with that issue so they can write the rules. I'm going to go to Ann next on this one. Um, I'm struck sort of by what Tom says about you know, the, the five hospital districts, the five communities that are, um, at least on the Medicaid side, doing, doing the, the most care at the highest cost. And it sort of gets to a, a general question on making things more efficient. Do we focus on the people who are doing the most right now and try to get them to do it better, or do we focus on kind of getting everyone up to a baseline? How do we go about, from your perspective, getting an efficient healthcare system? Well, I think that we, in fact, already are focusing on the people who do it the most first in that uh, Medicare and Medicaid are the two systems that are sort of systemically already implementing a number of different experiments in payment and delivery reform. 
So you know, I agree with everyone that, that the payment and delivery reforms are critical. But I would say that you know, I have a little bit of fear right now. I think that 20 plus years ago, we were all real excited about the theoretical promise of managed care, which was supposed to reward quality, but as it turned out, just was the flip side of fee-for-service. Instead of making people rich for providing too much care, it made people rich for providing too little care. And I think hitting that middle ground where you really are holding providers accountable in a reasonable way for outcomes, but in a way that doesn't punish them for providing necessary care or reward them for providing unnecessary care is not easy to get to, and, and it's going to be a major challenge for us. And I also think that one of the, the difficulties, uh, relating back to, to some of Arlene's comments, are that the free market may have some very beneficial pieces of our healthcare world, but it, in a free market, we have 26% of Texans uninsured, so it has not made it affordable for everyone. And one of our biggest challenges in health reform is that every single sector of our healthcare economy, and there are a whole bunch of them, to the extent that they are for profit, and even some of them that technically aren't, uh, academic institutions, et cetera, that have institutional survival issues, it is everyone's job who is for profit in a capitalist system to maximize profit. And, and that means that even if you understand that you have practices that are actually not improving people's health care and that cost too much, or you're charging twice as much as the guy across town for the same thing, it's your job if you're for profit to keep maximizing your profit. And so the system of trying to force all of those different players into being more cost effective is hard work that requires uh, political spine that's darn hard to find uh, and very difficult to find. So I think we have a whole lot of challenges moving towards that ideal. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not worth trying to get there. Okay, so Arlene, so what changes in Texas law or federal law should we consider so that the market can make healthcare more efficient? The ultimate uh, entity that can control the cost is the consumer. They do it, in, the consumers do it in every other area of our economy. There's no reason to think that they could not do it in this economy. So our goal is to reestablish the financial relationship between the patient and the provider. Uh, third party pay in my world is the root of all evil. And uh, I do disagree with the perspective that, that Ann has, that we're, we have a free market system now. There is very little free market system existing in healthcare right now, and that is the problem. And under, uh, by our research, we demonstrated that we could cover more Texans under a Medicaid program just by employing a sliding scale, something that Tom very briefly alluded to a few minutes ago, that if we can get this out Medicaid out of an all-or-nothing entitlement and move it into a subsidy for a private sector policy, the private sector policies, those private individual policy, that marketplace will be rejuvenated, and uh, I think we'll start seeing the, the cost go down when there is, as we like to say, skin in the game, a more responsible individual who has uh, something to, to gain and lose by accessing health care uh, appropriately. 
Uh, so in our research, we were able to actually go up to 175% of poverty for everybody by just employing some of the, the common sense things like sliding scale. Okay, let, let's turn to the um, second of the really intractable problems. So these are the hard ones. You know, healthcare delivery and inefficiency is really, really hard. Um, and uh, the, the other one that's really hard um, is underlying health. Um, our state, our country have rather poor underlying health, unhealthful behaviors, smoking, poor nutrition, lack of physical activity, um, and many serious conditions that we get like diabetes uh, that are largely preventable. And so Title IV of the Affordable Care Act does some things uh, about community health, but I think everyone would agree um, alone couldn't possibly solve this problem. So, um, Anne, let me start with you and ask you a very pointed question, uh, which is can we improve people's health without intruding on people's freedom? Well, I'm only slightly less perplexed by this question than I was when you first posed it to me last week, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> giving it away. What do I know about this? I think that uh, one point I would want to make is that, and, and you've sort of pointed to it in, in laying out the outline of the bill, is that the different pieces of reform, none of them makes the other happen, basically. You, no country has a system of financing healthcare for everyone because it was a natural outflow of anything else. Societies have to decide we're creating financial health uh, access because improving the cost of health care, improving the safety and quality of health care, uh, improving community health, none of those things will necessarily lead to financial, universal financial access or opportunity to access health care. So I would say that you have to attack each of these pieces separately. And I think that the, some of the delivery reforms that we've talked about that probably most of us do agree on, the movement to medical homes and to team-based care and to outcomes-based care, those are all things that could contribute to improving community health. But community health is way bigger than just health care. And I think one of the best examples I can think of uh, in, our, in my lifetime is watching what's happened with kids who grew up being taught in school that smoking was bad and that it would kill you. And I think that that did make a difference and you had kids telling their parents not to smoke and they grew up with the understanding and we have a different attitude about the risks of tobacco use. Unfortunately, I think that we have a whole new set of challenges in front of us in terms of raising children with an understanding about what their bodies need to be healthy and what kinds of foods are destructive and those sorts of things. And that's, you know, it could take a generation to get there. Absolutely. We are, we are, uh, the deck is stacked against us evolutionarily in terms of the fact that the things that our bodies crave, which when we were primitive people were really hard to get, <laughs> like sugar, salt, and fat. Uh, Cheeseburger. The things that we really want are not good for us when we eat them 24-7. So, uh, and, as I said before, one of, the, one of the side effects of the free market is you can make a lot of money selling people foods that essentially are addictive. So we have a lot of challenges, and we're not going to be able to turn the battleship of bad healthcare practices, which cut across all economic groups, uh, but may affect some of the lowest income people the worst. Uh, we're not going to do that overnight. Arlene, let me ask you the I, same question. I just have to say, Bill, well, I love it when Ann and I agree on something. Yes. It is. Oh, I, I, I'm asking the exact same question with a slight wording <laughs> twist, which is 
how can we improve people's health without intruding on their freedom? Well, right now, let's just take a look at what happens with Medicaid. Right now, uh, if you talk to a physician, if you talk to a pharmacist, they will tell you that the, those who are on Medicaid have the least uh, percentage of compliance with what they've said. The doctor tells you to yeah, lose weight. That's true. Uh, you agree? Yeah. Okay. So why then? Well, as Ann said, there are a lot of factors that go into that other than just what kind of insurance you have. But insurance plays a part in that. If um, I'm a, when I was a mother of small children and they had an ear infection and I went to the doctor, got an antibiotic, the doctor said, don't stop giving them the antibiotic until it's all gone. I see some mother's heads out there nodding. You know how, what a pain it is to keep giving your kid that antibiotic on days five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 when they're perfectly healthy. Well, part of my incentive for continuing since we were uh, self-insured, I had an HSA that I modeled before HSAs were even existing. So it meant that I was taking the money to pay for that doctor visit out of, my, out of my savings account. I paid for it. And I knew that if I didn't keep giving that antibiotic on days five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, that I'd have to go back to the doctor with another ear infection and start all over again. I thought you were going to say you're buying the antibiotic four days at a time. And exactly. yeah. <laughs> I would have if I could have. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Bill, I think part of the issue on shifting this is getting the legislature's mindset different. Let's take diabetes as an example. I, I can't remember the numbers, but I'm probably pretty close. About 20% of, of the Medicaid expenditures are diabetes-related or, or secondary issues associated with diabetes. So if you can do something to, to prevent diabetes on the front end, but here again is where the area where the legislature always cuts first is preventive programs. And number one on the chopping block because it's the hardest thing as a commissioner and as a deputy commissioner that I've had to do, whether it's for any of the health and human service program, is fight for our funding for the prevention programs. And that should not be, it should be the opposite. We need to shift that 20% over on the front end of the prevention, but how do you do that? I don't know. I think one of the concepts I would kind of interested maybe have an have a, a, a extra tax on, on and that's another thing I'd have gotten in trouble for, <laughs> have a tax over here on the front end of those things that are causing the disease issues here. Have a soda pop tax over here. It's going to save you here at some point. Kind of get this thing reversed because we're just not investing on the prevention. Thank you, Dan. You got a word on yeah, this I'll, one, too. I would argue that if you look at cigarettes, we tax on cigarettes, we tax on alcohol. If you look at cigarettes, and I'm not... I don't smoke and I don't dip or anything, but if you look at the, at the what damage those done, they're comparable yeah. to the to the diabetic model in terms of costs and dollars and everybody. We don't we don't have anything that helps compensate or pay for a health prevention program in in Texas, and so the notion that the physicians or the or the hospitals are going to do something that's gonna when you beat your head against the wall. This it's 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 phenomenal that we think that somehow diabetes is gonna get taken care of. It's, I don't I don't see it, and we historically it's it's getting worse. 
soda pop tax, Mac, Mac tax, uh, something that where you provide funds through some mechanism that would help you use for prevention that you could dedicate to prevention. We don't have it. Well, I don't, don't see any it. billboards out there talking to people about about these issues. Correct. You know, I, I see a few encouraging people to immunize their little Texans, but you know, it's not like we've had a massive public education or public health education campaign about these eating things, and and some of it might have to do with the fact that there's a lot of people making a lot of money selling well, food that I, makes us fat. I, I want I want to compliment you. Where in the interest of time, I want to give time for a little, a few audience questions. Yeah. But I want to compliment you all, particularly in this segment, for how much kind of passion, commitment, and actually agreement you have on these underlying health issues, which is something that in the typical. Um, political discussion of, of health care doesn't over really happen that much. Um, but uh, so if people want to, with questions, would like to move to the microphone, I'm going to actually ask my last question, and I'm going to ask, ask for um, one word answer, which can be yes, no, or maybe. And the, que and the question is uh, about the politics of health care reform. Has the state and the national political climate simply become too toxic to make real progress on health care reform? Yes, it's too toxic. No, it's not too toxic, or maybe. You're not going to give me a time frame or No. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Maybe too toxic. Dan? Yes. Yes, it's too no. toxic. No, it's not too toxic. No, it's not. Okay. Debate uh, forces results. OK. Um, and now let's uh, take a few questions. Uh, uh, thanks for contributing to this discussion. Um, I know that at least half of you, at some point in your career, were covered by a public sector health plan, or actually 60% of you, including the speaker, by a public sector health plan or insurance. And I was doing some back of the My Humana no charge uh, advantage bill. And it seems that right now 30% of the state's population is covered by public sector dollars. If you add the other three million in potential Medicaid eligible under the change in the law, you'd have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million people. I would assume if you had a group of 10 million people, you could cut costs pretty dramatically. Uh, and you could offer them the same policy, Tom, you had as uh, chairman of uh, HHSC or whatever it's now called, uh, the ERS uh, Health Select Program. Could I, could I ask you to formulate the question so they can no, respond? No, that's it. Quickly? Why not? Have any of you it's, given thought? So, so, so more in is better? Yeah. To have 10 million people on Leveraging the, the coverage. So Leveraging your buying power. Power, yeah, by creating a group of 10 million people. Uh, is that something that's possible? The group. I think it's, it's uh, good in theory. I, you know, I think the, the actual, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's good in theory, and the application of it might become some complex. But purchasing power, I mean, that's, I think, part of the rationale of managed care implementation in Texas to begin with, because it does bring, you bring a group of big lives, and you create some economies of scales there, and you take the management down to the local level. Question from the microphone closer to me. Oh, um, hello. My, my name is Tyler Murray. I'm a third-year medical student at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And my question may be better for the uh, legislative preview session, but I thought I should ask this panel. 
I see the debate over the Medicaid expansion basically is consisting of two extreme positions. You have the governor basically insisting that he wants the money as a block grant, and then you have the Obama administration saying that in order for states to expand Medicaid, they have to agree to all of the conditions outlined in the expansion, such as expanding eligibility to 133% of the federal poverty level. I don't think it's likely, given the current political climate, that either side is just going to suddenly decide to opt into the conditions that the other side is um, proposing. So do you think, given the current political situation in Texas and nationally, and assuming President Obama gets reelected, that there's any possibility that the state of Texas and the federal government could work towards a compromise where maybe Texas receives exemptions from certain <laughs> provisions of the bill that it finds objectionable and is still able to draw down at least some of the money? Tom, I'm, I'm going to ask you to answer that because you can answer that. <laughs> I, I, I think the answer is yes, and I think that's what the big debate's going to be beginning in January at the legislature. There has to be some compromise. I don't think the Affordable Care Act was written to be implemented in a vacuum. I think some of the messages in the 1115 waivers, Bill and I were talking about earlier, is they approved it for Texas. I think that's a, a message to us. They want a stepping stone. I, I think, uh, I can't speak for the governor, but I had enough conversation with him to know he doesn't mean it's all or not. I think he clearly believes he doesn't want to consider any Medicaid expansion until we've got the fundamental reform starting. So I'm getting lots of signals we need to wrap up. As a courtesy, said, a last question here, if you could please make it brief. Yeah, I'm looking at the first thing on the quality and affordable care of all Americans. How do you deal with the fact that of the mental health issues in that general area? Because nobody seems to be dealing with mental health and how that gets impacted in terms of it being exempted from so many health pro mm -hmm. programs overall. Well, the positive things with the Affordable Care Act, uh, I believe, if it still stays, is when they do the benefit packages, mental health coverage will, will be expanded in that. And you need to bring mental health and, and physical health together. And I think that is one of the positive things that, that's in the Affordable no, I, Care I Act. I think, I'm sort of with Tom, is that the, the biggest hope is you do have mental health parity. It has to be included in all coverage after 2014. And that our best hope is for much more dramatic integration of mental health in with physical health so that it, it's not a stepchild anymore and it's, it's taken care of. Absolutely. And the, the, bill, the waiver that we're working on now with the federal government on Medicaid does have mental health provisions in it that are significantly better, but it has absolutely been a stepchild and it's pathetic the way we treated mental health. Well, thank you all for being a wonderful audience. And thank you, Bill. And uh, I'm sure the panelists will be around for a few minutes. And please remember the ballpoint pen and the French fry. <laughs>